Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. A recent report put out by the environmental groups Environmental Entrepreneurs and Keystone Energy Efficiency Alliance said that Pennsylvania employs 66,000 people across all 67 counties in the clean energy sector. That's a 15% growth from the 2014 figure. A large majority of those jobs are are in energy efficiency. Here today to discuss the report and the state of clean energy jobs in Pennsylvania is Bob Keefe, Executive Director of Environmental Entrepreneurs. Mr. Keefe, welcome to the program. Hey, Scott, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Now, I will tell our listeners that we have a a pretty jam-packed program today. So shorter segments, if you'd like to ask a question, uh, I encourage you to get that in. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Bob Keefe, uh, the report is entitled Clean Jobs, Pennsylvania. What was the idea behind the report? Sure. So, Scott, uh, E2, my group, Environmental Entrepreneurs, has been tracking clean energy jobs around the country for about four and a half years now. Uh, Earlier this year, we came out with a report that shows about 2.5 million people nationally now work in clean energy. That's that's a big number. And as you mentioned, in Pennsylvania, about 66,000 Pennsylvanians now work in clean energy. That's renewables, that's energy efficiency, that's clean vehicle manufacturing and things like that. That's the good news. This, this is a, uh, still a big and a growing industry in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, if, if Pennsylvania wants to keep it going, though, however, we need our lawmakers to do more to support this industry. And we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. As I mentioned in the introduction, this is an increase of 15 percent in just uh, two years. Why do you think we've seen that kind of growth? Well, I think a lot of that growth has been is, is reflective of what's happening nationally, Scott. Look, the, in the, the energy industry, which, as, as we know, Pennsylvania really got started back in the, in the oil days and then in the coal days, coal days the, the energy industry is really uh, uh, moving into a, a new phase now. This is the next phase of the evolution of energy, and it's clean energy. So you're seeing, uh, you're seeing a lot more wind farms out on the mountains on the Allegheny. You're seeing more solar in our cities and in our and even on our farms. There's a lot of farms now that are putting solar out there, generating clean, renewable energy. And as you mentioned, a, a big part of this is energy efficiency jobs. About 80% of the jobs that we track across the state are in energy efficiency. And that's everything from companies that put in higher efficiency lighting in our offices and our homes and our schools to save us money and and reduce our uh, electricity waste. It's companies that are making energy efficiency appliance, energy efficient appliances now. It's companies like Burner Industries outside of Pittsburgh that makes these cool air curtains that go between the um, uh, uh, the, the doors of industrial buildings, things like that. And of course, it's the window and 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 weatherization companies all across our state. Now, all those, you know, the, uh, there are so many homeowners, business owners out there that uh, are trying to save money uh, on their utility bills or are doing it for environmental reasons, that uh, they, they do want a cleaner environment. Uh, but energy efficiency, you know, that seems like something that started a while back, that uh, this is not really anything new. Is there, other than what the curtains you mentioned, is there anything really new in the last few years in energy efficiency? 
Well, I think it's as simple as a light bulb for starters, Scott. I mean, uh, five, ten years ago, we were all still using uh, uh, very inefficient uh, uh, light bulbs that from incandescent light bulbs from Thomas Edison's day. Uh, we saw a switch to CFLs, compact fluorescents. Now it's all about LED lighting. And LED lighting, if you think about it, is, is, is just a humongous energy saver. It's about 80% more efficient than the old incandescent Edison bulb. And you, you'll be hard-pressed to find a, a major building in, uh, uh, in our major cities or too many houses, actually, that don't have LED bulbs in them now. That's saving a lot of money. Uh, it's a smart, easy technology, and people are doing it everywhere. You know, Another, I... Go ahead. Another area is, is around uh, HVAC systems, heating, air conditioning systems. The, the systems that we're putting in now are more efficient than they've ever been. Every time we do that, we save energy and, by the way, help the environment. When you say they're they're more efficient using less energy, how are they doing that? Just curious. LED lighting or, or well, HVAC both, systems? both. Well, it's just technology. It's technology upgrades. Uh, LED lighting is just a is a is is a much more efficient technology. Uh, and when you swap out uh, a building that has thousands of light bulbs in it, you're going to save a lot of money. You know, I find people seem to be, you know, when I w- walk into uh, a hardware store, a home improvement store, and people are buying uh, light bulbs or some type of, of lighting, they, they seem to be confused that, okay, they've heard about LED uh, you know, they, and incandescence, you know, not as available as what they once were. I don't know. Do we right. need to do a better job of educating people? I think people are getting educated themselves, Scott. When they put these bulbs in, they realize that the lighting is no different with, with light bulbs in particular. The lighting is no different, uh, and the energy savings are huge. And while we don't, in our jobs report here, you know, we don't, we don't count the guys that sell the light bulbs in Home Depot or Lowe's, but we do count the companies that put these in, and there are hundreds of companies all across Pennsylvania that put these in, in, in big industrial buildings, for instance, and, and big office buildings. They're creating real jobs. We're talking with uh, Bob Keefe, Executive Director of Environmental Entrepreneurs, about a new report that uh, came out uh, earlier this month having to do with a number of clean energy jobs created here in Pennsylvania and uh, really across the country. But this one uh, focuses on Pennsylvania in particular. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. The report said 8,800 people are working in renewable energy here in Pennsylvania. And that includes solar and wind. You know, I've talked to many people over the years, last few years anyway, here on this program, that uh, you know have promoted renewables, saying this is the way of the future here in Pennsylvania. But they also there's there's always a but. It's not happening fast enough. That uh, solar and wind are not a big enough part of uh, Pennsylvania's energy portfolio just yet. Do you agree with that? And what has to happen for that to occur? Absolutely, I agree with that. And look, here's where policies matter, Scott. Uh, right now, Pennsylvania has a, something called a renewable portfolio standard. It, it requires uh, utilities to get a small portion of their energy from renewable sources. In Pennsylvania, it's about 8%. In New York right now, they're working on 50%. In the country of Cuba, Scott, it's a 20%. Uh, renewable standard. In the state of North Carolina, it's something like 12%. 
There's no reason why Pennsylvania should be losing out to places like New York, North Carolina, Cuba. You know, we need to address these standards in the state to make them better and stronger. Uh, another important policy there in the state is, is Pennsylvania Act 129, which is an energy efficiency standard. It's a standard that's been on the books for a long time. Frankly, it's old, it's weak, and it's watered down. Uh, you have companies right now, some of the biggest electric users, electricity users in the state, who are trying to get out of this policy instead of uh, 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 staying in it and, and reducing our energy use generally in the state. We need to address that through standards in Harrisburg. Okay, so you, you mentioned some of the legislation. I'm going to talk a little more, more about that, but first I want to take a phone call from Bill in Lancaster. Bill, you're on the air. Good morning, Scott. You'll Hi, have to excuse me. I seem to have a froggy throat. Yeah, in the summertime, that's not good. No, it's definitely not. Yeah. I've been after Kermit to get him out, but I haven't <laughs> succeeded yet. So what's uh, up, Bill? My question revolves around the LED light bulbs. Now, being an engineer, I know what goes into an LED light bulb is very simple. It's a small transformer and a few LEDs. And LEDs are extremely cheap. You can buy them for like a dozen for a couple of bucks. Now, a 60-watt LED light bulb has dropped down very cheaply to about $5, $4 or less. But 75 watts which is only a few more LEDs, are going for 10, 12, and 100 watts are going for 15. Now, I want to know if he has any comments as to why the government is forcing us to use 60-watt LEDs when the 100 watts are, are priced out of sight, and there are many rooms where 100 watt is necessary and it's better for your eyes when you're reading to have a brighter light. Especially for us older people. Absolutely. Hey, hey Bill, thank you very much. You for, uh-huh. <laughs> thank you very much for your call. So, Bob, what about that? Well, look, I don't think the government is forcing anybody to use any particular light bulb. The fact of the matter is there's, there's a lot of lighting choices out there these days. And I'm, I'm not a lighting expert. I'm, I'm kind of a clean energy jobs expert now. I've become one, I guess, but... Uh, as far as as far as lighting, there, there are standards that that brought up the incandescent bulbs to better efficiency, which resulted in the LED lighting at the wattage levels that Bill was talking about. And and you see you saw what happened when the smart policy took place. Prices came down; they became more available. More people used them. It's just a matter of time before these other standards move up and the price and the efficiency and the effectiveness of those higher wattage bulbs, I believe, will come down as well. So you you think that uh, it's almost like a supply and demand kind of thing, that uh, the more people buy the higher wattage bulbs, the more the prices will come down? That's right. I think it's it's with so many new technologies. Look, I was a technology reporter for about uh, 25 years, Scott, and, and we saw what happened in the computer industry. We saw what happened in the microchip industry. We saw what happened in the cell phone industry. Uh, What we're talking about is energy efficiency technology, and that's no different than technology that you've seen in other industries that have become increasingly and dramatically more affordable as time goes on and technology gets better. The solar industry is another area. You know, look at the price of solar panels have come down 50 percent in the past five years. Okay, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. I mean, for someone considering solar, 
um, you know, to get the panels put on the roof or in their yard, um, that one of the reasons that many people didn't do it is that it was so expensive to get it done, you know, the installation. You know, once they're installed, you know, after a few years, you probably recoup what you put out. But that, that upfront cost, what's the cost nowadays uh, for, I don't know if you can answer this or not, for a typical home to get uh, solar panels? Um, I, I honestly can't answer that uh, because I don't know the market that well in, in, in Pennsylvania. Um, I think you're talking about in the $20,000 range, and I think you're looking for a typical house, I would guess, and you're looking at a payoff of someplace in the uh, uh, in the 20-year range. Again, I'm not an expert on, on solar, uh, but but what's made it more affordable and more accessible, if you will, Scott, is that we've got a number of programs now, one that was announced just last week, uh, which makes financing financing these things easier. Uh, one program is called it's called net metering, or third party, and, and another uh, policy is called third-party sales, where you have um, uh, private solar companies that can come in and sell panels to you now, whereas in the past you had to go through a utility to do that. Um, most recently, about a week ago, something uh, a policy was passed on the federal level that will help folks roll the cost of solar panels into their mortgages, uh, which would be helpful for a lot of people as well. Mm. So we only have a few minutes left, Bob. So what are you advocating for here in Pennsylvania? What do you think? You mentioned that 8% uh, figure of renewables. Uh, what are you advocating Absolutely. for? Absolutely. The three main policies will keep these jobs going in Pennsylvania, Scott. Number one is increasing the renewable standard in the state of Pennsylvania beyond 8%. Uh, let's match other states around you because those jobs are going to go to New York and to North Carolina and to other places if we don't keep them in Pennsylvania. Number two, strengthen Don't Weaken Act 129, which is the energy efficiency standard for the state. And then number three, the state needs to continue to work toward implementing the federal clean power plan. The clean power plan will reduce um, carbon emissions at existing power plants by about 33%. Uh, and you do that by adding more clean, renewable energy. You do that by increasing energy efficiency. And, by the way, you create a lot more jobs along the way doing that. You know, we're going to have to, because we've we've done this on previous programs, uh, it's, you know, an optimistic point of view talking about creating jobs in this sector. Uh, yeah. But then we have other areas of our state that are concerned about losing jobs in coal, uh, natural gas, oil, Absolutely. you know, those those fossil fuels. Bob Keefe is the executive director of Environmental Entrepreneurs. You can see the report on our website. We have a link to it, uh, WITF.org. Bob, thank you very much for being with us today. Scott, thank you. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The biggest topic of conversation in south-central Pennsylvania this week is the heat wave. Temperatures well into the 90s for much of the last two weeks have left many of us wondering when there will be some relief. Some thunderstorms last night brought some much-needed rain. But is it enough? Could there be drought conditions on the way? Joining us is Pete Young, who is with the National Weather Service and State College. Mr. Young, welcome to the program. Good to be here. All right. Uh, we've heard a lot about uh, 
this heat dome that the country, at least the lower 48, uh, is under over the past week or so. Uh, I, I, I imagine that's just kind of a neat little name that uh, we're using. But what is a heat dome in scientific or meteorological uh, terms? Yeah, uh, it's not that uh, difficult a concept. Basically, um, when we get into the summer months, the uh, upper air patterns don't change very rapidly like they typically do during the winter. So sometimes we see these large areas of high pressure kind of park over a region for an extended period of time, and that's what we've got going on uh, now across a good portion of um, of the country. And and basically what that is is that high-pressure system just – sits over an area, and uh, as, as the days go on, um, the, uh, the solar heating combined with uh, general sinking air, which is uh, typical in, in a high-pressure system, kind of adds to, if you will, trap that, that warm air or that hot air um, in a certain region of the country for a while. And that's, that's really where we're, we're seeing right now. Now, this isn't unusual for the summer months, as you just mentioned, uh, but I don't know whether it's, say it's unusual or not. Maybe it's just that we haven't had a heat wave here in south-central Pennsylvania like this for a while, uh, or at least the the length of this one that has lasted like 10 days or so. Uh, is, is that part unusual? Yeah, again, uh, you know, each year varies a little bit, and, uh, you know, exactly where that uh, large area of high pressure sets up and the extent of that uh, can vary. Certainly we've had an extended period of hot weather here in Pennsylvania uh, this year, going back, like you said, uh, probably at least a week that we've had uh, temperatures at or above normal. And uh, really the last few days have really kind of peaked uh, in our temperatures where we've seen temperatures climb well into the uh, middle and upper 90s. And uh, you, you said to me yesterday when we, we spoke on the phone, uh, I used the term heat wave, and that's what most people talk about. And, we, and we've had that defined many times as just uh, three days in a row of 90-degree-plus temperatures. Uh, as a meteorologist, how do you refer to this? Um, again, uh, I think heat wave is the, is the term that, that we would use. Again, this has been a, a little bit longer. And, and really, the last few days, we've really got in, gotten into some uh, pretty extreme uh, heat index values, uh, topping over 100 degrees, um, actually into the mid and upper uh, 105 to 110 degree range uh, yesterday. So that's kind of been on the extreme of the, uh, the heat here kind of um, in the last few days. You know, it's funny that... Uh... It seems as though uh, people, uh, Americans, uh, pay much more attention to the weather. I know it's become, you know, very big on television, and uh, it's a big topic of conversation. But there's terminology that uh, many of us had never heard of up until a few years ago, things that we pay attention to. Heat index is one. Uh, Another thing that uh, we hear about, we used to hear about relative humidity, and uh, now we don't even, we don't hear about that term very very often. Uh, but talk about a heat index. What is a heat index? Uh, heat index is basically a number that was derived to uh, give a sense of how oppressive the temperatures really are. Um, I, I'm sure all of us have heard of those extreme high temperatures you see uh, in the southwest desert sometime, 110, 120 degrees. But their uh, humidity is so low there that there's really no adding or multiplying effect by the humidity. Now, here in the Northeast, especially the last few days, we've had some very high and oppressive humidities. And you combine that with the ambient air temperature, and you kind of get this additive effect. So um, a temperature of 95 degrees 
with a high dew point would actually make it feel on human beings as if the temperature was 105 or 110. So that's basically all the heat index is doing. It's kind of the reverse of wind chill throw a little bit of cool weather talk into our discussion. But uh, again, it's the effect of how the temperature and humidity work together and uh, feel on the human body. Yeah, dew point is another one of those terms that it seems as though we hear much more about dew points nowadays than relative humidity. Uh, Why is that? Um, Dew point is really a much better indicator of just how much moisture there is in the air. Uh, Relative humidity, um, because of the word relative, Um, It's kind of a nebulous term. Um, On a day, even like yesterday, where it felt very oppressively hot, if you really looked at the relative humidity, because it's comparing the moisture in the air to the ambient temperature, there's still a large spread. So our relative humidity yesterday was probably around 50%, which doesn't sound very high. But when you look at the dew point, the dew point is an absolute measure of how much moisture there is in the air. And our dew points yesterday were approaching 80 degrees, and an 80-degree dew point is extremely oppressive. It's, it's very rare to find those type of uh, values here in Pennsylvania. That's more of a tropical type of moisture. So dew point, probably a more scientific uh, way of expressing the moisture in the air, um, and a lot more comparable if you want to compare apples to apples from day one to day two. So the dew point actually was in the 80s yesterday. I, I didn't realize that. I knew it was approaching 70. What is it today? Um, dew points are a little bit lower, but they're still well into the 70s. Um, we are expecting those dew points to actually come down a little bit. Uh, a lot of that high uh, dew point air, that high humidity air, if you will, is trapped near the surface. But Uh, As the day goes on today and we actually heat up, uh, that'll be a little bit of our friend, if you will, because it'll help to mix some of the drier air that's just a few thousand feet uh, above our heads this morning, um, help to mix that down and actually bring those dew point temperatures down. So while today will be another hot day, we'll probably see the dew points actually drop as we go through the uh, afternoon hours. So the big question I'm sure many are, are wondering is, will we see some relief in the near future from these high temperatures and high dew points? Um, a little bit of relief, but not a, a dramatic change. Um, we're looking for temperatures uh, to be relatively warm uh, right through the forecast period through next week, but we do see the temperatures kind of edging down a little bit. Uh, we'll probably see 90-degree temperatures um, probably through uh, Thursday. And uh, as we get into Friday and the weekend, we might see those temperatures come down a little bit. Um, not uh, not dramatically, again, probably uh, into the upper 80s. Uh, we are looking for some increased cloud cover and maybe a chance of some, um, some more shower and thunderstorm activity as we get into the late week and weekend. So with those additional clouds in place, uh, that'll help keep uh, the the overall temperatures down just a, a little bit. But, uh, again, no dramatic cooling on the horizon. You know, I have to tell you that uh, over the weekend uh, I visited uh, some relatives in uh, Perry County, and I was surprised when I got out of the car how brown their lawn was and you know there was you you stepped on the grass and it crunched underneath not that mine in you know below the turnpike is uh, is green by any chance i mean there's still there's still a lot of brown out there but this was very very much noticeable and maybe wonder about drought conditions on the way i mean we're nowhere near what we've seen on the west coast and maybe even in the midwest but 
I mean, are we looking at the possibility of, of drought here in Pennsylvania in the near future? Yeah, there haven't been any drought declarations made, but it certainly has been dry. And I know, um, you know, the Weather Service is not the agency that makes the drought calls here in Pennsylvania. It's the uh, DEP. But um, we're certainly looking at conditions, and there's a number of conditions that go into making a drought declaration, um, not just the, the rainfall or the lack of rainfall, but we also look at uh, stream flows um, and groundwater levels. We have groundwater um, wells across the Commonwealth that uh, measure how how high or how low that uh, water table is. So we look at a number of different factors to make a drought declaration, but you're certainly right. Um, you know, certain portions of the state have been uh, extremely dry, um, especially over the last 30 days. Um, as is typical in the summertime, most of our rain comes from thunderstorms, and thunderstorms, as you know, uh, you know, don't hit everyone equally. So certain counties, certain portions of counties have gotten a decent amount of rain. Uh, and kind of going back to your analogy there about the, the brown lawns versus the green lawns, places that have been kind of in favored locations have probably seen a, a good amount of rain this summer. But there are a lot of locations that have just missed out on those thunderstorms. And those are the locations that are really uh, stressing right now from the lack of rain. Those, those thunderstorms and even uh, the, the ones that rolled through uh, Pennsylvania uh, last night, I mean, they, they brought some maybe an inch, maybe two inches in some areas. Uh, I, I don't know if it's that much. Um, but it was quickly. Is that helpful when, uh, you know, we get that amount of rain that quickly? Um, again, it, it affects different uh, aspects of our, our drought monitor uh, differently. Uh, certainly, if you get too much rain in a short period of time, it's not doing a lot to help uh, agriculture. Um, it, water will run off the surface really quickly if it comes down too heavily, like you said, in a thunderstorm. But that water will make it into the streams and creeks and, and boost the stream level. So that one aspect of, of monitoring drought will, will actually improve. But you're right. I mean, the, the best type of rain to have to, to get over these dry conditions and green up lawns and things like that is not a heavy thunderstorm that dumps two inches of rain in uh, 45 minutes and then moves out. But a, an all-day rain that maybe only produces a half or three-quarters of an inch, but kind of a cloudy, cool day with a, a prolonged rain is certainly much more beneficial to vegetation. We have a call here from Rich in Marysville, and I don't know whether you can answer this question or not. Maybe in generalities you can, but Rich, you're on the air. Yeah, uh, I've been asking this question on on the local TV stations and Penn Live and stuff, but what is the highest low temperature we've ever had? And, and to explain that to people who don't understand, way back in the winter of 94, where it was real cold, there was a day that it did not get above zero. So you've got that off opposite phenomenon. It says, has there ever been a, a night here where it did not drop below, say, 80 degrees? Do you know? Um, I don't offhand uh, have that answer. I could certainly dig it up for you in our climatology books uh, if you're looking at a specific location. But, you know, that seems to be probably around, if I had to make a, an educated guess, probably right around that level is probably our our um, highest low temperature. Uh, what you're talking about is when overnight low temperatures uh, typically drop um, on very warm days or during a heat wave, um, those temperatures um don't drop that much. So we keep records of what our highest 
overnight low temperatures have been. And, and again, I don't have the exact number for, for Harrisburg or, or cities across the state right at my fingertips, but I'm, I'm guessing they're probably in that range. Yeah, I, I can actually remember, Rich, uh, temperatures, uh, low temperatures in the 80s because I complained to my wife the whole time about it. Uh, but uh, you can go to the National Weather Service, uh, to the website. and I, I really can't find it on there. Oh, you can't? Yeah, uh, yeah I've looked time and again. And Pete, it, is where, what would you do? I'm sure it's there somewhere subtly, but it's not very obvious. Yeah. Pete, any uh, advice there as far as finding those kind of records? Um, yeah, we do have a climate page on our, if you, our website is weather.gov slash state college. And, uh, I'm guessing you're probably interested in Harrisburg or something like that. We really only right. have records for, um, for airport locations. Um, there is a climate section on there, um, that has some, uh, climatology, uh, th- those type of records, the, the maximum low temperatures aren't things that people ask about too often. Uh, I'm not sure if that is directly linked on that climate page, but um, I'm sure if uh, if you need that, I, I, I can uh, do some research and come up with that, maybe get back to Scott or something okay. like that. All right, okay, yeah, Rich, thanks. thank you very much for your call. Well, Pete, I know you have to get back to work since it is a hot day. This is like your, uh, you know, I, I mentioned to someone that we most often on this program talk to the National Weather Service during a winter storm. Right. Uh, and uh, this is our version of the of the winter storm here in the summertime. But uh, so bottom line is it's not going to get cooler anytime soon, but maybe a little bit of relief over the next uh, maybe over the weekend. Right, that's that's a good way to put it. Uh, you know, getting back closer to normal temperatures, which are still in the in the middle and upper 80s for high temperatures. So, no big relief, but uh, again, uh, kind of cracking and chipping away at these extreme high temperatures and the high heat indices we've seen the last few days. Pete Young is with the National Weather Service in State College. Thank you very much for being with us today. Great, thank you for having me. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Democratic National Convention, of course, going on in Philadelphia, 100 miles from us, uh, maybe even less. Uh, and we've been uh, covering the event just like we did the Republican Convention in Cleveland all last week. One of the youngest delegates at the DNC and the youngest from Pennsylvania is 19-year-old Sawyer Neal, who is from Elizabethtown. Mr. Neal is pledged to Senator Bernie Sanders. Sawyer Neal, welcome to the program. Here, let me get the right one. There we go. Sawyer, can you hear me? Yes, I can, Scott. Okay, good. So where are you right now, Sawyer? Right now I'm in the Doubletree Hotel. I just got out of the Pennsylvania delegation breakfast where I actually just cast my vote for Senator Sanders. You did cast your vote for Senator Sanders? Yes, sir. So you were pledged to uh, Bernie Sanders all along. What in particular attracted you to Senator Sanders? Yeah, I'd say for me, it was the issues that he brought to the table. Um, So I'm a young guy. I'm 19 years old. I'm a college student. He's he's talking about issues like college affordability, issues like criminal justice reform, LGBTQ, women's rights. um, And he is making those a part of the national conversation. Uh, And that that really drew to him, drew me to him. He's, He's talking, he's speaking my language. He's speaking the language of young people. And 
I wanted to be a part of that. Mm. Now, uh, you know, the first day of the convention, or at least the, the first half of yesterday, uh, mm-hmm. there was so much, uh, so much coverage, so much talk about uh, uh, the Sanders delegates like yourself and uh, whether they would support Hillary Clinton. And there was, of course, the big controversy with uh, the email from, uh, from uh, the Democratic uh, Party uh, that, uh, you know, were, were hacked into. So you said you cast your, your vote for Senator Sanders. Will you support uh, Hillary Clinton? Yes, yeah, Scott, I plan to support whoever the nominee is. Um, you know, as far as females go, some, some of that language was unacceptable. The religion emails with regards to Senator Sanders is not okay. When we fearmonger on the basis of religion, you know, we are becoming as bad as Donald Trump when we do that. But we also need to keep note that the Democratic Party is listening and responding to our complaints about that. We have Chairwoman Debbie Washington Schultz resigning on Friday. Um, we've adopted the most progressive platform in the history of a major party in this country. And we, I think yesterday, just approved a unity commission where we're going to try and get rid of superdelegates and open up our primaries. So those emails are unacceptable, but we're, we're changing the Democratic Party for the better. But how would you classify, now this is your first convention, but how would you describe the mood of uh, Sanders' delegates? Because from the outside, you know, we heard about booing. uh, We saw a lot of angry people. Uh, Are they over that? Um, I I think so. If you listen to the coverage throughout the proceedings yesterday, you would see that longer we go into the convention, the more people are you know, behaving respectfully. For me, that's that's the big issue. I think we need to respect the individuals on stage, and we can't be rude. We we've we've improved the party so much, and I, I see Sanders's political revolution as being a long haul kind of deal. Right? This is something we're going to be doing year after year after year, and. I, I want to continue to be a part of it. And I think that's what we need to do at the convention. Well, you I don't know if you're a typical Sanders uh, supporter, but you are young. And a lot of people, uh, that is one of the things that uh, when people talk about the Sanders revolution this year, it was uh, in, in my, a lar- large part driven by young people. All right, let's talk about yourself. 19, you're the youngest delegate from Pennsylvania. Uh, you know, most 19-year-olds or most people your age are not thinking about politics today. How did you uh, develop this uh, interest in politics? Ooh, okay. So I, I first started following politics, geez, in like 2008 uh, when Barack Obama was running for president. I, I was, you know, middle school, something like that. But I started reading a lot about politics. And then come the 2012 election, I interned at my state Democratic Party, the PA Dems, um, and then... I, I just kept on going from there. I've worked on campaigns from the municipal level, state legislature, statewide, um, and I, I want to stay involved. I, I look at it as a way to actually improve the world, a way to make a tangible difference in the lives of people. So you were 15 when you interned with the Pennsylvania Democratic Party. It was like a week after I turned 16 that I started, and I've been doing it ever since. Yeah. What about other people your age? When you talk to uh, people your age and you say that you're a delegate to the Democratic National Convention, how do they react? Oh, they've been extremely supportive. Everybody, um, I mean, I'm a Sanders delegate. 
uh, the Sanders campaign in particular has gotten a lot of young people involved in politics, which I think is extremely important. Um, you know, Senator Sanders, I, my last check, received more youth votes than Secretary Clinton and Donald J. Trump combined. And that's important. We need to continue running candidates like Senator Sanders. We need to elect young uh, Democrats and continue working to get young people involved in politics. You touched on this, Sawyer, but uh, uh, what are the issues that are important to people in your age group, in your generation? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've seen that, and I, I don't know how fair it is to make broad generalizations, but I think we are increasingly aware of social justice issues, things like the necessity of criminal justice reform, things like uh, in Pennsylvania, legalized discrimination against LGBT individuals. Uh, and I think we're becoming more aware, and we want to actually make a difference. When you say becoming more aware and want to make a difference, you know, that's not that's not uh, the stereotypical view that most of us older people have of your generation. Uh, mm-hmm. And are you saying that you think that your generation is going to become or is more involved, more engaged? I think we're in the process of getting there. I hope so. I really hope that we can be more engaged. Um, You know, almost everybody that I know follows politics. I might be a bad sample size. But people on the left and the right among young people uh, are more aware. They're talking, and they are increasingly getting involved in politics. We have a record number of young delegates attending this convention. Um, I was just having dinner last night with, you know, 10 delegates, some from Bernie, some from Hillary, from all around the country. Uh, And that's something that needs to continue to happen. What is it about young people that uh, that young people didn't like about Hillary Clinton? Oh, I don't. I mean, I I know you say you're going to support her, but I mean, there was a reason you chose Senator Sanders Mm -hmm. over uh, Secretary Clinton. You know, what is it? What is it that the young people found Mm -hmm. about Hillary Clinton that they would rather support uh, Senator Sanders? I don't know if it's necessarily opposition to Hillary Clinton so much as the issues that Senator Sanders brings to the table, things I just talked about, like environmental justice, like criminal justice reform, making LGBT and women's rights the cornerstone of his campaign, college affordability in particular, I think for young people, Bernie Sanders. Okay. Uh, and right now, I think we're continuing to see that remain a part of our conversation. Just recently, uh, Secretary Clinton released a college affordability plan whereby uh, young people from families earning less than $125,000 a year would be able to go to uh, public colleges for free. That is important if we want young people to continue to be involved in politics. You know, and, you know, I'm not going to get into uh, a whole lot of policy here, but, uh, you know, when, when many people heard that uh, proposal from Senator Sanders, he said, okay, that sounds great, but how are we going to pay for it? Um, yeah, I think... That's that's an understandable, I guess, objection. But if we look around the world, literally everybody else does this. If we look across Europe, for example, uh, democ- socially democratic countries ranging from the United Kingdom to Holland, we see colleges either free or cheap for everybody in that country compared to now where young people are going into hundreds of thousands of dollars to get of debt just to get a bachelor's. So, Sawyer, what does the future hold? I mean, I, you still have uh, three days left of the, the your first uh, convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, do you plan on uh, getting involved in elected office or in government in the future? 
Well, you know, I'm, I'm a junior in college right now. I got a while to figure out, but I definitely want to stay involved. State politics especially interests me. Um, I've worked on campaigns, and I want to stay involved. When you say state politics, what in particular? Uh, state legislature, the PA General Assembly. Um, you know, everybody pays attention to what's happening at the federal level. Everybody knows who the president is. Most people know who their senator is. But the state general assembly and state legislatures in general affect people's lives more than the federal government. And I think we need to pay attention to what's happening because it actually matters. In Pennsylvania, for example, we have repeatedly been considering bills to ban LGBT discrimination in Pennsylvania uh, without luck. And I think more people are paying attention. For example, our budget you know, crisis last year, I think we might see things change. Sawyer Neal is 19 years old. He's the youngest uh, delegate from Pennsylvania at the Democratic National Convention, and he's from Elizabethtown, but actually Dauphin County. Sawyer, thank you very much for being with us today, and good luck this week. Hey, thank you so much, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We continue updates from the Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia today. Joining me now is Terry Bendana, professor of public affairs at Franklin and Marshall and College. And uh, he uh, is, of course, a pollster with the Franklin, Franklin Marshall College poll. Terry, welcome to the program. Hey, good morning. I was just chatting with that 19-year-old student you just interviewed, by well, the I, way, here at the convention. I have to tell you that uh, when he said that he's very much interested in what's going on on the state legislative level. I know. You you uh, almost fell off your seat, right? Well, you don't hear that often. No, you don't, but it's good to hear. It's good Absolutely. to hear. No, it's wonderful. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, yeah, Terry. He's a, also a Sanders delegate, I think. I yes. don't know if you asked him. Yeah, I did. he did. And he talked about uh, why he supported Senator Sanders over uh, Hillary Clinton, but he will support uh, uh, Secretary Clinton. All right. So what is now, I, you know, I asked uh, Sawyer about the mood of the Sanders delegates. Has it changed at all from yesterday? Well, I think we have to separate two elements here. First of all, if you watch the first, the opening uh, hour of that uh, session last evening, you, you, you thought you were in a strange universe. I mean, the booing, the cheering for uh, Trump, the hissing at, at uh, Secretary, when Secretary Clinton's name, a lot of that was coming from the, the Sanders guests, at, but some from, no doubt, from the uh, uh, delegates themselves. And, you know, we thought, oh, oh, uh oh, this is not going to be good. And even uh, when Elizabeth Warren spoke, there was rumblings throughout the uh, uh, throughout the arena. Make no mistake about it. Sanders made a point last evening in his speech before he got around to endorsing Clinton. And he said, this is a movement. This transcends any individual. And that's true. What, what's going on right now is that the progressive wing of the party, he has created a movement within the progressive wing of the party. Now, as I watched the demonstrator, 5,000 strong, and last evening they were outside the arena, they are definitely dominated by millennials, by the next generation of leaders, you know, the 18 to 29-year-olds. And there was some, you know, there were some older people there. I don't just want to make it out to be millennials. But I will tell you, when that convention opened and after those first, they're going through the introductions and getting the, 
you know, the various officers of the convention. It was, it was, uh, I think, a big surprise to uh, most of us sitting there. What changed? I mean, the, the tone did change once the first lady spoke. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. I think you had to, you had to collect, the, the, you know, the three speakers that ended the evening. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, not so much, I think, but obviously the first lady. And again, you know me, if they give a good speech, I thought Mike Pence gave a great speech at the Republican convention, so I'm not being partisan about this, but the First Lady gave a good speech, and, uh, you know, that went a long way towards, I think, making the case for Secretary Clinton in an unusually, uh, let me put it this way, in a way you wouldn't normally expect to hear. And then, of course, you had Sanders making the case for her, saying he would do whatever he could. He would go and, you know, support her. Presumably that means go out in the campaign stump with her. We'll see how that works out in practice. It got the tone got better. But make no mistake about it. When Sanders was going on in a positive way about Clinton, the tears were running down the eyes of the of the convention of the Sanders delegates and his supporters. I mean, it was palpable, Scott. I mean, you had to sit there as, you know, and go, oh, my gosh. Hmm. Now, yesterday when we spoke, you said that uh, Senator Sanders had a, a fine line to walk uh, between endorsing uh, Secretary Clinton and criticizing Donald Trump. Do you think that uh, he, he did what he needed to do for the Democrats? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know that he could have done anything else. I, what was really surprising to me was the buildup. The buildup. He he had to hear, and he, he had to walk the line between his own supporters and Hillary, support for Hillary, not disappointing them, and at the same time make the case against Trump. Now, make no mistake about it. Who's the attack dog? Elizabeth Warren, right? right? Yeah. I mean, she was the designated. Not that you you get my point. Right. She was the attack dog of the evening. And here's what he couldn't do, Sanders couldn't do. He could not let his supporters, he couldn't brush them off. He couldn't say, okay, we're done. It's now all about Clinton. Notice what he said and how he, this is a movement. You notice what else he said? In the, in the vote tonight, when names are put in nomination, you're, you're going to vote for me. He expects to get his 1,700 and so, get, you know, he wants them voting for him. He can't disappoint them after all the work and the time and the effort. And remember the passion that the this is a group of people more passionate than any other contingent in either party's convention, even the Trump supporters. Hmm. So Bill Clinton, former president Bill Clinton, speaks tonight. And, uh, right. you know, there's been a lot of speculation of, you know, what he'll say to uh, try to make his wife more empathetic is one of the words I hear most often. So what do you expect exactly. from the former president? Well, I mean, you know, we've had all these speeches and most of us have been wrong about what they would Right, say. right, yeah. But, but, but having said that, I couldn't agree more. I think he's got to show a human side of her. He's got to show the empathetic side. He's got to show that she cares about people. And that's been a theme, if you get it, that many of the – but what he can do – is personalize it in a way that other people can't, and that's, uh, and you know that that can be an element uh, that is missing because 
of, you know, it's his wife, you know. And, and as I think I mentioned to you earlier in the week, she was, along with Al Gore, who, by the way, endorsed her yesterday, but he's not here. I think that was an endorsement <laughs> that he gave her. Uh, he's not at the convention. But Al Gore and Hillary Clinton were Bill, were Bill Clinton's closest advisors when he was president. So I don't I mean, I think he's likely to go to some of that about when we had the good times in the 90s. She was an advisor. She, she was a mainstay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Heavily and intimately involved in the decisions that I made. I think we're going to hear a good bit of that. But I suspect we're going to hear about the mother, the wife, the, the humanizing aspects that that all too often goes missing. The other thing that they need to do is both Trump and Clinton are the two most unpopular presidential nominees in modern history. There is no parallel to this. And what's motivating a lot of voters is not support. I'm not talking about here in the convention hall, obviously. It's not What's motivating them is not their support for their own candidate, but because they dislike the opponent more. And we've not seen that before. This election has some of the most unusual aspects to it that, that, that we've seen. And I think given where we stand, more are likely to unfold in the months ahead. Unless there's uh, an incumbent. But, uh, yeah, a case where you have two that aren't incumbents. Terry, we have about right. two minutes left. Pennsylvania delegation today. What, what, what's up in Pennsylvania? Well, what went on today was it was Labor Day, meaning the labor leaders came in one by one from the various unions and talked about, you know, the loss of jobs, talked about the wage stagnation, uh, went through a whole litany of problems with the economy that affect their workers in the middle class. It was, you know, the kind of speech that you would expect to hear from uh, national labor leaders. Senator Casey has spoken every day. He also talked a good bit about the middle class and about wages and how they've been depressed over the course of the last uh, couple of decades. And it it had a distinct theme to it, unlike uh, yesterday, where it was more eclectic with the different kinds of speakers. But what you have here is one by one, you know, they're also including some of Pennsylvania's important Democratic leaders, uh, Lieutenant Governor Stack, uh, jo- uh, I was in and out. I don't think Josh Shapiro, the candidate for attorney general, is here. I don't think he spoke yet. I, uh, I have not seen Katie McGinty, by the way, at any of these breakfasts. Now, there's a couple hundred people there, so it's possible you know, she was in the somewhere in the audience, but I don't think so. Now, she will be on stage Thursday. Which is kind of, that's, that's a big deal, by the way. Yep. Yeah. yeah, but I think here's what I think. I'm, again, we'll have to be sure. About 30 she's seconds, Terry. She's going to be introduced with the other Senate candidates supported by the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. Mm-hmm. How, how long and what kind of a speaking role she gets remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. More on that later. Okay. Dr. G. Terry Madonna is a political analyst and pollster at Franklin and Marshall College at the Democratic National Convention. Terry, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you, Scott. My pleasure. All right. Have a good time. All right. Let's see. Uh, what do we have? Coming up tomorrow, we have a, all this week with the convention, we have full shows. But uh, one of the things we're going to talk about is manufacturing, some of those manufacturing jobs that went away and what some local counties are doing to make up for those jobs. <laughs> 